Let's pray together, and I'll, I'll make sure that we pray for Eric as we get going. God, we do thank you for all the things that Psalm 104 declares about who you are. That you are creator, sustainer, that you look down from heaven upon your creation and you mercifully and graciously superintend all things. And we are in awe of you for that. We do pray for our brother Eric and Anita as well. God, that you would allow Eric to make a full recovery quickly. We thank you that you spared his life. And we pray for Anita and their children as they're going through this stressful time. God, be a comfort to them and and just a source of refuge and strength in this difficulty. And Lord, we thank you so much for your word and how it makes us wise. And I pray this morning as we sit under this teaching that we wouldn't harden our hearts, that we would soften our hearts and humble ourselves before you. Lord, that your spirit would convict us and encourage us and just grow us into the likeness of Christ Jesus more through this time. And we pray it for his name's sake. Amen. So I'd love for you to open your Bible with me to Genesis chapter 8. And just a quick recap. Last week we met Noah who found favor in the eyes of God. Most people are familiar with the story of Noah's ark. God showed Noah grace and therefore God warned Noah that he was going to be sending a flood upon the earth that would destroy humanity because of man's sinfulness. And because of God's favor on Noah, he instructed Noah, enter into this boat that I'm telling you to build and you will find rescue. And God sent a flood. He killed all the men, women, children, and animals on planet earth. Again, because man's sin was offensive to God. But Noah and his family, they were saved from this destruction. And by grace, they passed through the flood that God sent. And they were redeemed. They made it through without perishing. So today we pick up uh, in Genesis chapter 8 with Noah and his family exiting the ark at the end of the flood. And what we're going to see is kind of a creation 2.0. If you've been hanging out with us as we've made our way through Genesis, I want you to notice some of the similarities between what we covered today and what we covered uh, back in chapters 1 and 2. God's going to reaffirm what we call his creation mandates, that man would be fruitful and multiply on the earth, and that man would have dominion over the creation that God made. God's also going to establish some new rules. We saw back at the beginning that God gave all of the vegetation to man for his consumption. But now that sin has entered the world, God is going to sort of reform the rules in light of that. New dietary guidelines that include even the consumption of animals. And God's going to give some guidelines for what basic justice looks like on earth. And God's also going to make a covenant promise with humanity, I would even say with all of creation, with sort of Noah as kind of the representative. And God's going to make a promise that he's going to place his bow in the sky, the rainbow. And that's going to be a proclamation to all of humanity throughout all of the ages that God is patient, that God is enduring, that God is faithful, and that throughout all the generations of the ages of man, God intends to 
spare humanity from another destructive flood like this because God is merciful. So let's read starting in chapter 8, verse, beginning in verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, Summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. All right. So Noah, he steps off the ark and the first thing that he does is he builds an altar to the Lord and he worships God. And that's exactly as it should be. What better thing could Noah do as his first act after stepping off the ark? He gives himself in worship to God, rightly offering praise and adoration for the salvation that God offered to Noah and to his family. And this should be not only our first response to God for who he is and all that he has done. It should also be our continual ongoing response before God for who he is and all that he's done. Christians are a worshiping people. Um, I spent most of my life growing, well not most of my life, I spent all my life growing up in the church 
And uh, so this is very normal to me that the people of God gather together in worship. But I've always thought, what must non-believers think when they come through the door? Why do we sing these songs to the air? And why do we sit here and listen to these words that are old? It's because Christians are a worshiping people. And we should always give the first of who we are and all that we have to the praise and glory of God. And we worship because we recognize that our very existence is a kindness from God. And we recognize even more significantly, probably more importantly than even that, the redemption, the salvation that we have is a part of God's grace. Apart from his grace, we would perish. Noah understood that his feet were standing on dry land instead of his decaying body on the surface of the earth because God had rescued him from judgment. Noah didn't do this. God did this. And God is pleased when we worship him. It's good and right that we would worship God because he's the only one who's worthy of adoration and praise. All of creation is the work of his hands. And our salvation, too, is a gift which he has given to us. We didn't make ourselves. We didn't save ourselves. And so just like Noah, we worship God because he's given us life. And he's given us grace. He's redeemed us. But I want to take this a step further. And I want to take you beyond just Noah. I want to remind you of Job, the man of suffering, the man of sorrows. Because I think it's fairly easy for us to worship God when things are going well. It's easy to worship God when you step off the ark and you look at the destruction around you and you realize, man, my life is good. I've been spared heartache and sorrow and difficulty. It's easy to worship God when life is comfortable and easy and free of conflict. But if we look past Noah and we remember the story of Job from Scripture, we're reminded that we should worship God not only for the good things that he gives us, which are numerable. If you ever go and count your blessings, you will realize that you've been given many. But do you understand that as a believer, we should also worship God when he brings trials and suffering and hardship and heartache? Because those difficulties are things that drive us to God in need and desperation. Scripture teaches pretty clearly in places like James chapter 1 that trials force us to see God's grace as our all-sufficient provision for everything that we need. And so we are people who should be in love with God deeply for his great provision and his wonderful rescue, and so in love with him that we would say, like Job, the Lord gives, praise God, and the Lord also takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Whether God is giving graciously, generously, or whether he is taking graciously, blessed be the name of the Lord. So let me just ask you a question for personal reflection. Is your heart in a state of worship right now? As you look at Noah, would you say that your heart is like his heart, offering praise to God?
And I don't mean right now because you're sitting at church and we just sang some songs and that's what worship is. No, I mean, does your life radiate with adoration and praise and thanksgiving to the God who is your salvation? Is that the state of your heart generally? Are you able always, regardless of the circumstances that you might be going through, to offer up praise to God? Not just when things are good, but even when God tests you and presses you down with hardship and suffering. Following in the footsteps of Noah, Christians are a worshiping people. And we worship God because he saves, but we also worship God because he disciplines and he's worthy of praise. God made you. He saved you. He loves you. He's in the process of bringing you home to his eternal kingdom. He's in the process of redeeming all of the things in this life that are wrong and broken. And for all of that, regardless of the difficulties in your life, you owe God all the glory. Where we should be as believers is on our face before the Lord in worship. And if you can't if you feel like in this present moment in your life, I know what that's like, I've been there, but if you feel like in this present moment of your life, you can't offer God worship for some reason, then you need to take your eyes off yourself. You need to stop looking at the circumstances that surround you. Maybe you need to shut off the news or tune out the bad news. And you need to fix your eyes back upon the glorious God of Scripture the God that Scripture magnifies and says is glorious. And you need to be reminded of who he is. Look to Noah, offering praise and worship to God. Be reminded that he is worthy of adoration. He made you. You are his. You've been redeemed for his glory. Now, in his worship, Noah slaughters animals as part of his offering of praise. And maybe you've been wondering Wait a second, there's a lot of that in the Old Testament, in the Bible. How come when we go to church, we're not like butchering animals uh, like Noah did? And I want you to understand, it's not because it's violent or gross. It's not because it's old or archaic. The text tells us actually that God is pleased by the aroma. Did you notice that? No, the reason that we as Christians don't slaughter animals in sacrifice is because Jesus, the Son of God, surrendered his life, his body to the slaughter as the perfect atoning sacrifice, the ultimate fulfillment of what all of that in the Old Testament points to in Christ. This is very basic Christian teaching, but it's worth touching on. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice for sin. And because his blood has been shed, there is no longer any reason to spill blood to please God. God is eternally pleased because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And in response to giving uh, his life for our sake, our response is to live our lives as a living sacrifice to God. We give ourselves, our bodies, our lives, our thoughts, our hearts, our desires, our stuff. We give all of that to God, not as a blood sacrifice, but as a living sacrifice in response to the blood that Jesus shed. We ourselves 
are an offering of praise to God. And that's not by killing ourselves or spilling our blood. Rather, it's by denying ourselves and dying to ourselves, putting the sinful desires of the flesh to death so that instead we might live a life that is daily pleasing unto the Lord, worshiping him as a daily act of sacrificial obedience. Christ died for us as a sacrifice. Therefore, we live to him as a sacrifice. The reason why God takes blood so seriously in 9.4 is precisely because he is preparing the reader of Scripture to understand the significance of the blood of Christ, which is going to come much later. Blood symbolizes life. Look very closely at verse 4. That's literally what it says. Blood equates to life, and therefore it's sacred to God because life is sacred to God. It's not about the blood. The blood means life, and life is sacred to God. And if the blood of animals given for food is sacred to God, then how much more the blood of God's own Son? It's astounding beyond comprehension that God would choose to present his own son as a sacrifice for your sin, for my sin. That God would choose to cover up my profane evil with the precious, priceless blood of Jesus Christ. That a sinner like me would be ransomed out of judgment and destruction by the act of Christ giving up his life. And so the reckoning which God speaks of in chapter 9, verses 5 through 6, it's twofold. First, this is where Christians get the idea of what we would call capital punishment. The basics of that concept are grounded here. God hates death. He hates murder. He hates killing. But if man sheds the blood of another man then he forfeits his own life. There is a reckoning. And it's pretty simple. If a man determines that the life of another man is not of any value, it's not sacred, then that man judges that his own life is not sacred and therefore his life is forfeit. Since murder is an attack on the image of God in man, the attacker also deserves judgment for the offense against God. We live in a secular society, and I mean, just think about this. We live in a secular society that somehow thinks that it is immoral to put a man to death for murder, and it is perfectly moral to murder an innocent preborn child. That's insanity. That's self-destructive craziness. And God declares that the consequence for shedding man's blood is death because life is sacred. But there's a second level of reckoning here in the lifeblood because Scripture teaches us that Christ died for the sins of the world. That's 1 John 2.2. 2. So we could say that each of us, as a result of that verse, is guilty of shedding the blood of Jesus. 
Your sin is why Christ died. And if you take that to its logical end, that means you are a murderer. You murdered the Son of God. Jesus died for your sin. You helped put him there. And as a result, then, your life is forfeit. We are condemned before God. But if we turn to God in repentance and we acknowledge the wrong that we have done him and we ask for forgiveness, then the blood of Jesus does not condemn us as a murderer. It redeems us. It becomes the sacrifice for our sin. But if instead we reject the cross, then the blood of Jesus becomes the evidence that cries out against us that we are condemned before God and we are deserving of judgment and wrath. For the lifeblood of Jesus, God requires a reckoning and you are responsible for shedding his blood. And either that, that reckoning is we take the condemnation ourselves and we spend eternity in hell apart from God, or that reckoning is the blood of Christ itself which becomes our atoning sacrifice that redeems us. Man is going to give an account for all of his deeds before God at the end of all things, but first and foremost, we will give an account for whether or not we accepted the blood of Christ as our redemption or whether we rejected his death and chose not to find rescue in it. And so I plead with you, if Christ is not already your substitution, your atoning sacrifice, then I beg you to repent. I beg you to believe. I beg you to see that God requires a reckoning for the shedding of blood and you are guilty before him. And if Christ has become your sacrifice for sin, then you have every reason to live your life as a living sacrifice in response for what God has done for you. You are eternally indebted to this God who bought your life with his own blood. The next thing I want you to see is the promise that God makes in chapter 8, 21 to 22. I know we're going back a little bit. We're going to talk more about the covenant that God makes in just a moment. But I want you to see in these verses that God not only promises not to destroy mankind, but God promises to sustain the earth. One of the fanatical movements of our day is this radical environmentalism, this climate alarmism. The claim that you, as a person living on earth, you are destroying the planet. Now, there's no doubt that Christians should care for God's creation. How could you look at this marvelous thing that he has made and think that you have no responsibility to treat it with care? We honor God when we exercise our dominion over the earth in a way that promotes beauty, that uses resources with good stewardship, that encourages life and health and growth. Even as we wrangle these natural resources and we put them to work for the good of humanity and the improvement of the human condition, that's true. But as we do that, we glorify God as long as we consider that our children's children will also have to make use of this same planet and the resources here. 
And we show them love and respect by passing on to them a planet that is in good condition because we've lovingly cared for it. We are caretakers of this earth that God made. We're not owners, we're stewards. And we should assume that responsibility with every effort to execute this responsibility with respect and honor for God as caretakers over what he has made and with appreciation for what he's entrusted to us. But the fanatical ranting and raving of these secular zealots who basically describe humanity as a plague on earth, you are the problem and you need to be purged so that the planet can be saved, that's an arrogant slap in the face of God. It diminishes what God has called good in humanity and elevates the natural creation above the creature that God put his image into. God made the earth for man. He did not make the earth for its own sake. God commanded that humanity be fruitful and multiply, and God promises here in verse 22 that he will provide. It's not man and his environmental governmental policies that sustain the earth and lead to beauty and flourishing. It is God who does this. And God has promised that until the day of the final judgment, seeds will grow. The harvest will yield food. Seasons of cold and heat will come and go. The cycle of day and night will continue. And even if mankind tried his best to overthrow what God has established in the created order, man would fail. Don't think so highly of yourself. And there's a sad trend among my generation and people even younger than me. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but my generation and younger, we're now beginning to claim that it's basically immoral to have children. Because if you have children, you're contributing to the destruction of earth. And that's just a load of nihilistic garbage. That is an affront to God who said, be fruitful and multiply and I will provide. It directly opposes two points that this passage of Scripture affirms. God made the earth. He will sustain it. And God commanded that people would be fruitful and multiply. And God will provide for the flourishing of humanity in accordance with his will in creation because he is gracious. And if he's commanded it, he will make provision. We should appreciate the earth that God's given to us, but we need to humbly remember that it is God who sustains the earth. And we need, as Christians, to confidently believe that God will make sufficient provision. He governs the earth. He keeps it. He will make sure that it is hospitable for man throughout all the generations that God has determined should be present on the earth. And you are not a blight on the earth. God made all of this for you so that you could be here that you might worship him and give him glory. And so as Christians, I encourage you to resist the temptation to be swept up in the idolatry and the fear of climate alarmism, even as we conscientiously participate in caring for what God made. God has given man dominion over the earth, and even after the flood, he's purged humanity, he reaffirms his intention for us to have dominion over creation. God is pleased 
when people are fruitful and they multiply and God is glorified when we exercise our dominion over the earth and he's promised to uphold the earth as a place that will be hospitable to the flourishing of man and anyone who argues against that is guilty of wicked unbelief and idolatry of the earth. Now connected to this is the explicit command in chapter 9-1 that people be fruitful and multiply And this has been reiterated throughout Genesis numerous times. And it's reiterated even in this text twice. The implication is that Christians should be people who are pro-family. Pro-husband and wife, pro-marriage, pro-children, pro-family. Parenting is super difficult. but, But I want to challenge the parents present in the room this morning for just a moment. How often do you complain about the difficulty of being a mother or a father? How often do you think negatively about the hardship of raising children? Do you whine and complain in front of your kids about what a nuisance they are? If you've done that, you need to repent of that before your children. They need to see that you are sorry Do you see yourself as engaged in some kind of life of suffering because you have kids? Do you think about all the things that you don't get to do because you're busy raising children and they take your money and your time and your energy? If that describes you in any way, shape, or form, I mean, I want to just gently and humbly as a parent say that that's that's wrong, that's sin, and you need to repent of that. And you need to change your attitude. Children are a gift from the Lord. Ask any grandparent, they'll tell you. (laughs) But truly, children are a gift from the Lord, and God is exalted in the children that he gives to us. And he's pleased by the growth of families. He delights in that. Your children are a blessing. God takes joy in them. He smiles upon them. And the godless world sees children as a curse because children limit your freedom and they take up your time and they prevent you from being selfish and narcissistic. And those are all reasons why God gives us children. And that's a blessing. We as Christians are blessed to give ourselves to the work of raising kids and being stewards of their hearts and pointing them to Jesus. And there will come a day where God will say, I gave you the heart of that child as a steward How did you do taking care of that precious heart of mine? And I think the way that we change our attitudes as parents is to remember you have a heavenly father. Do you realize that you stand before God as a needy child? You are the annoying one. You are the one with petty problems. You are the one constantly interrupting him. You are the one with sinful habits and incessant petitions. You are the one who God has to spend all of his time organizing things for, making the sun rise for, providing for. And God does that with joy. He loves it. He calls you his child because he delights to do those things. He takes great pleasure in taking care of you. And he doesn't complain about it. He's long-suffering. He's pleased when you go to him with your needs and you say, Father, I, I need help here. 
And because we have a good father in heaven, we can be good parents to our children. We can look to God and find joy in the task that he has given us, in the purpose of serving them and loving them, laying down our lives that they might be treasured and well cared for and brought up to cling to Jesus. The command to be fruitful and multiply, it is a blessing. It's not a curse. All right, moving on. When we get to chapter 9, verses 9 through 17, we, say, we see God lay out this covenant for Noah. And ultimately, it's his covenant with all the creatures of the earth through what he says to Noah. And the technical term for this covenant is what we would call the Noahic covenant. There's some debate here, but I think this is the first covenant in the Bible. It's certainly the first instance of this word being used. And I would call this a covenant of mercy. I want to make a distinction here. This is a covenant of mercy. And mercy is actually different than grace. When we get to the new covenant, that's the New Testament, the covenant that Jesus makes with his people through his blood, I would call that a covenant of grace. But the covenant with Noah is a covenant of mercy. So let me define mercy. Mercy is not receiving what you actually deserve. And in this case, God mercifully promises that even though mankind deserves to be wiped off from the earth again and again and again and again, God won't send a flood. That's mercy. Even though man will persist in his evil and deserve judgment, God will not give man what he deserves. But grace, grace is receiving from someone favor that you don't deserve, which is kindness on top of kindness on top of kindness. I don't remember where I heard this. It was many, many years ago, so I can't give credit, but I remember uh, an illustration that I heard years ago that I think kind of helps picture the difference, and maybe you've heard this too, but imagine with me that you're caught speeding, and it's a speeding ticket that's criminal in nature. You're doing like 90 miles an hour through a 15-mile-an-hour school zone with kids standing on the side of the road, right? Cop nabs you, and like you're just done, and because of the nature of your crime, you're brought before a judge and the judge explains to you that this kind of extreme crime requires a $10,000 fine and six months in jail. That's restitution for what you did wrong. Now imagine if the judge said, look, you're, you're guilty of this crime. It's significant, but I'm a merciful guy and it's, in, it's within my power to grant you sort of a um, a break here. And so I'm going to waive the fine and I'm going to go ahead and exempt you from the jail time and I'm going to let you just go free today with no penalties at all. You did not receive what you deserved and I think that would be mercy. That's basically what's going on here with the Noahic covenant. God knows that as long as mankind lives on earth, it's going to be an epic disaster. Sin is going to run rampant Cultures are going to create chaos. Governments are going to become corrupt. People are going to be exploited and abused. Man is going to deserve punishment. But rather than destroy mankind from the face of the earth for sin and evil, God chooses not to apply the punishment of the flood. God lets people live their lives on this earth that he made, even though they're guilty before him, and that is merciful. 
Every day the sun rises, the earth remains with people teeming on it. God is pouring out his mercy in untold generosity. And he promises that for as long as he intends for man to be on planet earth in this present state, he will permit people to dwell on this planet without flooding and destroying them. And he puts this bow, the rainbow in the sky to remind us of his faithfulness. Living in the desert, we don't get to see enough of those, I think. But every time we see the rainbow, we should remember God's been merciful to us. He has not destroyed us. But Hebrews 10.1 tells us that the things of the Old Testament are a shadow of what God intends for the reality. His much bigger plan. God has greater things in store for humanity than just mercy. He intends to offer humanity grace. So now join me back in that courtroom. You're standing before the judge and the judge says, man, we we got it on record. You're doing 90 miles an hour in a 15. You could have killed some kid on the side of the road. The penalty for your crime is 10 grand and six months in jail. Only this time the judge says, look, you deserve to pay these penalties for your crime, but I'm a gracious judge. And he pulls out his checkbook and he writes a check for $10,000 to the police department. And he says, I'm going to pay your fine for you. And I'm going to go to jail on your behalf. I'm actually going to spend the next six months in prison serving your prison sentence. And then he pulls his keys out of his pocket and he tosses them to you. And he says, those are the keys to my Ferrari, the keys to the front door to my house and my lake house. And he writes another check for 10 grand. He says, and here's some, you know, some spending cash. I want you to just enjoy the next six months on vacation. You got my car, my house, and my lake house. That is a picture of grace. And you're sitting there like, this is stupid, Grady. This is absurd. Yes, the grace of God is absurd. It's, it's crazy. It's more extravagant than even this. If you think this judge is extravagant, God is far more extravagant. Instead of not getting what you deserve, you receive what you don't deserve. Favor. You should have paid the penalty for the crime that you committed, but instead of the penalty, you're given blessing in its place. You benefit from the sacrifice of another when you should have suffered for your own wrongdoing. In the Noahic covenant, God shows mercy. He does not give to man the judgment man deserves. But this is only the very beginning of the kindness God shows to humanity. And even here in these verses, the seeds of grace are sown and they point us forward to Christ. We already touched on this, but it's worth mentioning again in light of our discussion on grace. Look at verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. The penalty for murder is death. But if the penalty for murdering a man is death, what should be the penalty for murdering God? Jesus wasn't merely a man. He was fully God. What if you read verse 6 like this? Whoever sheds the blood of God, by God shall his blood be shed. See, the real story of the Bible is slowly leading us to a solution for sin. Not like the solution of the flood that just wiped it out. 
No, not a flood of wrath, but a flood of God's grace that would redeem and restore. And that flood of grace happens when God takes on human flesh as the God-man Jesus. But tragically, rather than welcome him as a hero, we shed his blood and we murdered him. You weren't alive. You weren't standing there at the foot of the cross. But your sin cried out, crucify him. Crucify him. And in grace, Jesus willingly went to the cross to suffer the penalty that you deserved for your sin. The blood of God was shed when it should have been your own blood. And in place of the penalty that you deserve, which is death, God gives you grace. Grace, forgiveness, everlasting life, eternal joy, a share in his unspeakable glory. Peace with God and adoption into his family. All the riches of God himself that make the keys to the Ferrari and the lake house look like trash. Now there's another hint of grace here and um, I'll close with this. And I'm going to admit that I stole this. Um, I stole it from the Jesus Storybook Bible which occasionally I'm tempted to just preach from the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's that good. If you don't have one and you have little kids, you should get your hands on one. Um, And I'm stealing it because they absolutely nail it here. So in the ESV, which is the translation that I use, if you were reading along with me, you noticed that the text doesn't use the word rainbow. It just uses the word bow. And the reason is because Hebrew doesn't have a distinct word for rainbow. It just has the word bow as in a a hunting tool or a weapon of war. And I think there's something really beautiful to the idea if you connect the rainbow in its shape to this instrument of death, that the shape of the rainbow in the sky is a bow, like a weapon that shoots arrows. But if you notice the way that the rainbow sits in the sky, It doesn't shoot the arrows down at earth in judgment like it should. No, the rainbow is pointed up into the heavens. Meaning the symbol that God chose to leave humanity through the generations of man that he promised he won't destroy mankind with a flood because of our sin reminds us that God is going to ultimately deal with the sin of man by piercing the heart of heaven the heart of God himself. God's going to take that punishment, that suffering, that pain. The very heart of God himself will be pierced with wounds as he pours out his grace by putting his own son on the cross in our place. The precious son of God will be heaven's sacrifice so that we might be saved from destruction. God chose to destroy God to redeem you from sin. That's grace. So the next time you see the rainbow in the sky, I encourage you to remember that. I hope you'll remember that we've received more than just mercy from God. God will not flood the earth again, that's true. But more than that, through faith in Christ, we've received grace. The favor of God rests upon us. All the riches of God have been given to us in Jesus Christ. Because the heart of God was pierced 
when the Son of God took the arrow of judgment and shed his blood to redeem you from sin. Let's pray. God, we thank you for grace. What could we even say in response? There's nothing sufficient. But we do sing these songs to you now in an act of praise and worship like Noah, out of adoration that you've saved us, you've redeemed us. And God, we thank you that you not only just save us, but you also offer to us all of the riches of the kingdom of God. You call us children. We are heirs. We've been given eternal life. We've been called beloved. We've been rescued. And we thank you for that. And I pray, Lord, that as we sing these songs, that it wouldn't just be something that our mouths utter, but that out of the deepest places of our hearts, we would give you praise for who you are and all that you've done. In Christ's name, amen.